Hello, and welcome to Mission Daily. This is VP of Operations, Albert Chow. And on today's episode, I sit down with Ari Mir, CEO and co-founder of Clutter. Clutter is a full-service moving and storage company using technology to easily manage the pickup, storage, and retrieval of customer items. Listen to learn more about how he selected this market and his advice for building a great company. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. We are live. Okay. Ari Mir, CEO, co-founder of Clutter today for Mission Daily. Welcome to our show. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. Mission audience, we like to think that we're really well informed of what's happening in the world of tech, but we can't say that we know everybody. So Ari, can you start us off by giving us a quick rundown of what is Clutter and what do you guys specialize in? Sure. So Clutter is an on-demand storage solution available in a thousand cities throughout the U.S., And what we do is help consumers get through high stress, high anxiety life events. So one in nine Americans go through a death, a divorce, a marriage, a birth in the family, and they need to store their belongings. And what we do is we provide them with the most convenient and affordable solution in the marketplace. We have professional movers that we employ that will come into your home. You'll point out the items that you wanna put into storage. Uh, These movers will photograph and catalog those items so that six months or six years from now, you don't forget that you have that golf bag with us. Then they'll also give you a real-time on-site quote for how much your monthly storage rate is going to be. And then using packing materials that we bring to your home, our movers will pack your belongings so that they're protected uh, during transport. And then using our fleet of trucks, we will safely transport your items to one of our secure storage facilities. And once it's in one of our storage facilities, you can go to clutter.com and you get a beautiful photo catalog of everything that you have in storage. And you're one click away from having that golf bag returned back to your doorstep within 48 hours or all of your belongings returned back to your doorstep within 48 hours. As someone who has moved before, this sounds amazing because I actually think I'll never move again just because I hate moving so much. <laughs> yes, it's, it's incredibly inconvenient to move, your, move and store your stuff. So is that, curiously, is that where you got the inspiration for this idea? I'd like to hear how it originated. Where, did you hate moving or was this something else that you saw, like an opportunity try to get, take me back to the genesis of clutter? Well, I've always been very lazy. <laughs> Laziness pays off for entrepreneurs, right? It's always <laughs> yeah, finding a better way to do something. Exactly. You know, it forced innovation in this case. I was, you know, moving back from San Francisco to LA and uh, talking to my co-founder about starting a business and, you know, two very different reasons we both happened to kind of start complaining about moving in storage. And it's a, it was about just before 2015 when we discovered the problem and, uh, and you know, we were determined to help consumers by providing them with a more convenient solution. Gotcha. Now, so here you are, you're, you're, you found this problem, you found the inconvenience. Did you immediately see an opportunity? Before I go too far, a little bit about your background for the, our guests, uh, for our listeners. It looks like, according to your background, quite a bit of uh, entrepreneurship in your career. Uh, looks like you've been part of starting a couple of different businesses. Did you immediately kind of like eyes light up, see like this was going to be the opportunity or tell me about how that like that real moment uh, sounds like you were struggling to pack up San Francisco, head to LA. Was it immediate or was, did it take a little time to develop that idea? Sure. So I had worked for two other startups that other founders had co-founded a company called Shopzilla and another company called 
for my bills, both of which were successful. I then went on to co-found uh, my own venture back startup, an ad network in Santa Monica called GumGum that was successful as well. And then subsequently another venture back startup called Pocket Change that wasn't successful. And so Clutter was really my fifth opportunity at being a part of a startup, whether I had co-founded myself or joined someone else's team. And I had a long laundry list of things that I knew I wanted to check off before investing, you know, frankly speaking, the rest of my life into my next business venture. And it was very obvious to me from the beginning that Clutter checked off all of those things. And that was what was so exciting about it. If I look back on my career, a lot of the stars I've been part of or I started myself did not check off enough of those boxes. Now, that's amazing. What were some of those things that you were looking to check off? Well, one of them was actually, could I and do I want to spend the rest of my life pursuing this opportunity? I think that's ultimately really important uh, to go through that thought exercise. Because if you start a company looking to flip it in three to five years, I can promise you the odds are incredibly stacked against you and you'll most likely fail. And with Clutter, I saw a business opportunity that was personally fulfilling that I knew would keep me engaged for decades. What other checkboxes were you looking for? Well, one of the lessons I learned the hard way throughout the years was that the size of the market is ultimately the most important thing. Like our time on this earth is finite and we have an opportunity cost to that time. And so if you're an ambitious entrepreneur like I am, you should really think through whether you're investing your time wisely. And I wanted to make sure that I was building a product or a solution that would impact as many lives as possible positively. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of very lucrative business opportunities that you can pursue that don't, ne don't necessarily check off that box. But when you can provide a service that impacts one in nine Americans' lives positively, and those one in nine Americans need your service not for months, not for years, but decades, which is typically how long someone stores their stuff for, then you, you really have an opportunity to do that. That's a fascinating stat you just dropped. One in nine people, you said, are using some, some type of long-term storage? Yeah. Long-term storage uh, or just storage in general is a $40 billion a year market in the US alone. No, that's fascinating. MakeSpace was also on the show and they kind of gave us some interesting storage stats about how fragmented the industry is. Did you know that going in or, or did you do some homework that let you know like, okay, there's no dominant market player, like there can be multiple new players in this space? With Clutter, like I said, I had a framework for evaluating the opportunity. And part of that framework was I really wanted to approach it like a, a business school student would and do all of my market research first and outline some sort of plan for the first two years. And so, yes, I very much knew that it was a fragmented market. I knew it was a big market. I knew it was a lucrative market. I knew who the competitors were, et cetera. I really did my due diligence before starting Clutter and, and it's paid off dividends. That's fascinating because now I want to bring it back to what you originally said, that it had to be something that you would want to spend your rest of your life on. Now, I mean, most people don't love storage, but what made you, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't either, right? Judging from some of the businesses that you started beforehand. So what made it say like, okay, storage is a place that I can play? Well, some of the other things that I wanted to check off were, you know, one, I wanted to build something that was consumer facing. There are a number of different types of CEOs. There are sales leaders, there are marketing leaders. I'm a product leader. And so as a product leader, it's incredibly important that I have a relationship with the consumer. And 
you know, secondly, I, you know, was comfortable investing the rest of my life into this, the opportunity, because I knew that as the company scaled, more and more challenges would present themselves because of the fact that we're not purely a software business. We're a technology company that operates online as well as in the real world. And as a product leader, you never want to get bored. You want this kind of constant stream of challenges. And so I just knew from the onset that that was going to be the case. So when you say you're a product leader, were you mostly thinking about the experience of storage typically is, I'll, I'll relay what I know before technology, right? It's me going to, let's say, a less than desirable place possibly, right? Yeah. <laughs> Opening up a chain link fence, yep. um, cameras, barbed wires everywhere. Cameras yep. are on you. Because I know this from, I used to rent a garage to store my motorcycle, right? No one's there to help you. If they nope. are there to help you, pretty unfriendly, I'll stay. Yep. <laughs> That's the common thing, right? So as a product guy, you know, how do you change that side of the product? Is, is that where you got the idea? Well, what if we control the serve? Like, because you know, that side of the product is part of it too. You mentioned your drivers will come. Your drivers are going to pack my things. Uh, let's, uh, I'm a surfer. So let's say my surfboards, right? They're, these are fragile, beloved items for me. I don't have space. As a product person, how do you think about the interaction from the online experience to the mobile experience to the actual, you know, person from clutter coming to my house? grabbing my stuff and taking it. Well, what blew my mind five to six years ago was that this very big $40 billion a year market was built because consumers were going through high stress, high anxiety life events, but yet the incumbents that had built this industry almost didn't even acknowledge that and really delivered a self-service product to consumers, which is ultimately the least convenient thing you can do, right? If you ask people to do all the work themselves, when they're going through a high stress anxiety life event, then, you know, aren't you ultimately just increasing their stress levels? I would say, yeah, moving is like one of the most stressful, like ask any kid the worst day of college, it's probably move-in day, right? Move yeah. in and move out. <laughs> exactly. And so we asked ourselves, well, how do we 10x the convenience, but at the same price? And our solution back then, which is still what we're implementing today, is if you let us store your stuff wherever we want, meaning we can transport it to any one of our safe and secure storage facilities, they can be inside the city or they could be outside the city, then we can work really hard to expand our storage margins. And in exchange, we'll take those higher storage margins and we'll reinvest in you, the customer, and we'll give you moving and packing and materials and we'll give you an on-demand solution where you can ask for your items back whenever you want. That was the key to cracking this very large opportunity. So you're saying that I'm actually not going to see a material difference in price between me packing up my stuff myself and you, uh, you clutter coming to get my stuff. No, it's a true parody. So how did you make that happen? I mean, I, that, that seems, that seems like insurmountable. Tell me where were some of the things you were focused on? Tell me how you figured out that this was even possible. Um, I'd love to hear kind of like the genesis of this idea. It's, it's really interesting. Well, it's definitely not easy. Yeah, it's a big liability. Once you take my fragile items, like you, you owe me back <laughs> these items. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, we often refer to our business as an engine with a lot of moving parts. And so as a business, we're responsible for paying for materials. We're responsible for paying for the labor that moves and packs and transports your items. We're responsible for paying for the truck. We're responsible for paying for, the warehouses where we store your items for damage claims or just in general, 
you know, customer experience claims that may result from our ability to deliver service. How we're able to cover all of these costs so that you, the consumer, can get 10x the value of price parity is very much by arbitraging real estate, like I said earlier. You know, more and more people are moving into city centers, which means the land inside of cities is becoming more and more expensive. And so our entire hypothesis was that if you let us store your stuff outside of the city, where land is cheaper and it's more plentiful, then we probably have the margins to eat all of these costs and to give you 10x the experience and convenience at price parity. And five years into the business, we've proven that that hypothesis was correct. But you're right. It's incredibly difficult running this real-world supply chain. If you think about it, our closest analog is not public storage, the incumbent, the elephant in the room that we're trying to disrupt. They're just a real estate holding company. They don't do anything for you. Our closest analog <laughs> they have, is actually... They, they put up a barbed wire fence. <laughs> yeah, they put up a barbed wire fence and some orange paint. Uh, you know, our closest analog is Amazon. You know, we're consumer facing just like Amazon is. We're a technology company just like Amazon is. We run a real world supply chain, people, trucks, warehouses. It is a challenging business and uh, one that keeps us excited to go to work every day. So you mentioned now that you're in a thousand cities. Yes. So when you started, how many cities did you operate in? I'm assuming one, but. When we started, I think we only serviced West LA and only part of it. So I'm not even sure if that's considered a city. But so yeah, like a, like a zip code or something. <laughs> yeah, like if we, we started out by servicing a, a small collection of zip codes. What we found was our model really lended itself to geo expansion. You know, you build a warehouse and you can actually service a very large radius out of that warehouse. Whereas when public storage builds a self storage facility, they on average can service maybe three to four miles in every direction. When we build a warehouse, our warehouses can typically service up to 70 miles in every direction. And so that's just a massive competitive advantage that we have. It's a big radius. That's a yeah. very big radius. It is. Especially if you're in a densely populated area, like, uh, you know, you said, was it East LA or West LA? Well, when we started, it was in West LA and we didn't have our own warehouse to be clear. But now, for example, we have very, very large warehouses in Southern California, in the uh, Fontana and Ontario area that service everything from Santa Barbara down to San Diego, from everything from Santa Monica east to Palm Springs. When you were first going up, starting up, were you the one in there packing up the uh, packing up the goods? No, my co-founder, Brian, that's his superpower. He was the one going into uh, customers' homes and, and getting them to trust. <laughs> well, that's good. And how about when it comes to like finding a good partner? So you had already mentioned, you know, you're a product guy. It sounds like Brian had more like the people skills or could create that trusted advisor type relationship where, hey, I'm going to take your most beloved belongings. And I got to ask, did you tell them like your address of your warehouse? Like, how did We flip flopped on that a lot. We went back and forth on whether we should share the address because ultimately, you know, I understand why the consumer wants to know the address of the facility where their belongings are going to, but it's not in their best interest from a security standpoint. We don't want people knowing where these storage facilities are. And so now we no longer share the address, but throughout history, there have been times when we have. Did you and Brian work together before or did you kind of meet along the way during the idea genesis that you guys discovered you had good 
I guess, personality and skill fits that would complement each other? How did you go about choosing each other? I've always had co-founders in every venture I've started. I think it's important to have someone in the early days that provides you with a counterbalance when you're happy and they're sad, you can make them happy when you're sad and they're happy, they can make you happy. Yeah, because ultimately, you know, startups are a roller coaster ride and you're going to go through those swings. And I always recommend that you look for a co-founder that's very complimentary to you. You know, if you're an engineer, you shouldn't look for a technical co-founder. <laughs> if you're an engineer, <laughs> you should probably look for a business partner or, or a product person uh, to partner with. And um, Brian and I had been friends for a decade before starting Clutter. And so we very much knew each other's strengths and weaknesses. And it made sense to start this business together. So taking yourself, so now you and Brian, you're building the product, you're, I'm assuming you're designing, you know, the landing pages or however you're getting customers, the management systems, Brian's packing orders, taking them to the, uh, to the warehouse. When did you know, like, what was the moment where you looked at your, was it financially or just based on customer testimonial that you were like, okay, we're obviously something customers actually legitimately love this service compared to uh, the alternative, right? Because I've read that, I, I can't quote it right now, but someone said like, if you're not materially better than the next best alternative, there's, you might as well just fold up right now. Like, there's no point in starting up. I didn't know when was that moment where we're like, wow, we have something. We had reached about 70 customers and both Brian and I were still part-time, really pursuing this opportunity more as an R&D project. And I remember we went to dinner one night and we had a conversation about whether we wanted to invest 110% of our respective times into the venture. And ultimately, it came down to one question. It wasn't, are these customers profitable? It wasn't, can we get more customers? It was just, do the 70 customers that we have love the product or like the product? And without hesitation, we knew the answer. They loved the product because we would get feedback from them all the time. And what I said to Brian was, I've worked my whole life on a number of businesses, and I can tell you it's incredibly difficult to build something that people love. We should both go full-time on this and really go for it. And the moment we decided that, it became a rocket ship. What does a rocket ship mean? I mean, I don't know how much you can disclose, but like, how did you know that, like, why would you, did you describe it as a rocket ship? Were you like adding customers every day? Like, how, what was it like? I think there are a number of ways you can kind of qualify progress as a rocket ship, you know, whether you're getting a lot of customers every month or you're hiring a lot of people. For us, it was, uh, it was everything. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, I mean, it's only been five years. And in five years, we have grown the team to north of, you know, 11, 1200 people. These are employees. We service a third of the U.S. across a thousand cities. We have hundreds of trucks, millions of square footage of warehouse um, space, tens of thousands of customers, millions of items in our warehouses. And what that means is every month is bigger. So <laughs> that's, what, that's what a rocket ship is. When you start, every month needs to be bigger. And if you have a month or two or three that are flat, there's something really wrong. Because in the early days, everything should be up and to the right. That's awesome. So I take it then when you were during that time facing out, I guess every, every month has hit your, those criteria to the right. Yeah. And if it isn't, you take a real hard look and you try to solve the problem pretty quickly. No doubt. So how about, I wonder if you could take me to the point where you decided to go, you know, raise, like obviously raise money, right? Famously, it's on record that SoftBank invested 200 million into Clutter. 
was, was that the catalyst? Meaning every month you're having a bigger and better month. So you just need to raise capital. So you're saying, Hey, listen, we need warehouses. We need trucks. We need more people. These are our numbers. Let's go get money. Let's not grow organically. Uh, tell me, take me to that through your decision process there. Did you think you could do it organic or did you feel like we just wanted to explode into the right? Like you suggested. Some businesses benefit from scale effects. Some businesses benefit from network effects. Our business benefits from both. And so the more volume that goes through our supply chain, not only do our margins improve as a business, but our customer experience improves as well. To service that ever-increasing volume, you need a lot of capital with a business like ours. And it was really clear to me in the early days that this was going to be a capital-intensive business, Right. which is why at the Series A, we partnered with Sequoia Ventures and they led our Series A, I was excited to work with them because I knew they were the most famous investment firm in the world and their social validation of us as a team and our opportunity would help us raise additional capital for years to come. And that proved to be true because four years later, we made a lot of progress and SoftBank was then interested in investing. Sorry, SoftBank's Vision Fund. And now across five years, we've raised $300 million in equity capital to build all of this infrastructure that ultimately is making consumers' lives more convenient. All of these warehouses, these trucks, employing not only our engineers, but our hourly team members, which most companies don't do, but that we do, so that we can really deliver our service at scale reliably. Yeah, so curious, this is obviously you're at a big moment in time, right? Like you suggested, over 1,200 employees, a third of the U.S. cities, uh, hundreds of trucks. You have warehouses everywhere. When you sit back and look at, I guess, the size of business Clutter has built, is that what you envisioned from the very beginning? Or did you, was it one of those things where you saw, like, I could be this big, but now here you are. It's like, oh, we're just getting started. Take me through what your thought process is in regards to, like, scaling. and Did it meet your expectations? Where do you see the future for Clutter? We're about to move into a new HQ and our real estate broker that's helping us secure that new office space has been working with us from the very beginning. And oh, he loves the it. other day, he loves you. Oh, he, yeah, I mean, we're, we're his best, yeah, we're his best, we're his best client. But that, that aside, yeah, he, was, uh, he was joking the other day. He said, Ari, I don't know if you remember, but the first day I met you, you said that this was going to be really, really big and that I should pay attention to you guys. (laughs) And it's true. I knew from day one, this was going to be one of the world's largest companies one day. I didn't quite understand what the slope of the curve was going to be, whether it was going to grow really quickly and then, you know, kind of taper off or more, you know, steady up into the right. But I knew it would never stop growing. And I knew that because when one in nine Americans use a product or service, and they use it for multiple decades, what they're really telling you is that the opportunity is such that you can build infrastructure for society, right? You become a part of the fabric of their lives if they're using you every day for years. And if you look back at time, the companies that have created the most value are the ones that have created infrastructure. Very interesting point. I think uh, 
you kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit there or something very similar to what Jeff Bezos always talks about, right? Instead of thinking what new things are going to happen, what is not going to change in the next 10 years? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard him say that, but that's exactly right. Right. I've worked, the first half of my career was built around, you know, what is going to change. And it was very painful because as you can imagine, it's very hard to get that right. right. And the second half of my life was very much focused on what's not going to change. And I've had a lot more success since making that transition. You know, so you're obviously in a very different place now. Like, are you still product focused or are you more people focused? Obviously working in an organization of 1200 people is a lot different than, you know, you and your co-founder building applications to store things. What is your daily responsibility to look like now? How do you maintain, I guess, that vision so that your, your team members can align with you and, and, and work with you towards uh, Clutter's goals? Well, what I tell every leader at Clutter is that we all share three common responsibilities. First and foremost, it's team building. You have to understand what great talent looks like and you have to be able to recruit it. Secondly, team management. You have to execute performance management to keep the quality of our team and our resulting output high. And thirdly, you have to be a culture advocate. What are our core values? What are our leadership principles? When we leave the room, do you represent them well on your own? And then lastly, your domain matters, but your domain specific to you. Every leader has these first three Mm -hmm. kind of common set, common responsibilities. And so people find this hard to believe that look from the outside in, but I spend over half of my time recruiting. And ultimately, I think that's most important because it's the top of the funnel. And if you find great people and you have a strong culture, they will be successful and therefore you will be successful and your customers will have a great experience and so on and so on. And so while I'm a product leader and I think about strategy and I think about product development, et cetera, it actually only represents a minority percentage of my mind share. Most of my time is very much focused on people and anyone at Clutter would support that. So you, you made a great comment I want to follow up on. You said that, you know, you specifically look for what, you know, you said identified, what does great talent look like? In your world, what does that mean? Does it mean they have to have the skills? Does it mean it's attitude? Is it something that's indescribable? What is it that you and your leaders are looking for, for others to join Clutter? You need to have strong communication skills. We overemphasize for your communication skills because ultimately we are not only a a hyper cross-functional organization in that we need marketing, we need product, we need operations, we need customer care, et cetera, but we're also a multi-regional business. And so you can imagine when you're sending an email to someone across the country or jumping on a Zoom and you're a poor communicator, that's just going to be highly ineffective. Secondly, your work ethic has to be high. It doesn't mean we need you to spend 110 hours a week working at Clutter. We actually have very normal hours. But when you're here between 8.30 and 6.30, you have to be focused. You have to be productive. Don't spend all your time at the water cooler. And then lastly, you have to be a systems thinker. And what that means to us very specifically is can you identify the problem on your own? Can you ideate solutions? Can you execute those solutions? Can you be intellectually honest about whether your execution created net positive or net negative value for the organization? If you can do those three things, we care 
much less about what your domain is and whether you have a background in that domain. If you have one, it's the cherry topping. It's wonderful. But we're also comfortable putting someone into a marketing role that's never been in a marketing role if they have those three qualities. Yeah, that's fascinating that you said that. Um, it's, like, I think it aligns very similar. Like you and I align similarly uh, in regards to what we're looking for. I mean, Grand Admission is a much smaller organization than Clutter is, but I've always, and I think this is exactly what you're saying, which is I'd rather someone see a problem and attempt to solve it and report back, this is why it didn't work, than someone who said, well, it's not my problem. Yeah. Or someone who just, doesn't bother to update the organization about whether their solution worked or not because it didn't work and they don't want anyone to know. Like that, that's just horrible for everyone all around. We'd much rather know that something didn't work. What role did that attitude, I guess, play in clutter and in your growth? Did you have, do you have any like, uh, I guess, stories, anecdotal stories that said, Hey, this was the problem. Our team member figured it out. It solved this many hours of labor, made customers this much happier, anything like that. For example, retention is really important in our business, as you can imagine. Yep having customers continue to keep their stuff in storage helps our economics, which ultimately helps us keep everyone employed. And what we saw was we had some new hires look at our retention data and use data science to start to parse it into different cohorts. And there was very much behavior that was unique to each cohort. And you could tie that behavior to signals higher up in the funnel. For example, if someone stores a mattress with us, they're less likely to store their stuff for as long as someone who stores only boxes would. Something like that seems really trivial, very simple, but it's an important data point to have because then we can play with pricing and ultimately figure out how to give consumers the most value at the lowest price as possible. And that's just one example of two things. One, what we're talking about, which is people having hypotheses, testing out those hypotheses, and then sharing results with the organization. But two, that we're a technology company at our core, and that's ultimately what's required to make this really hairy beast work. How do you guys envision the future? Do you, do you see people owning more things? Do you think storage will ever, like storage habits, do you see it changing? I know that as we go towards more digital goods, for example, there's obviously less things. We got the Marie Kondos of the uh, concepts out there. Like, Do you see storage changing fundamentally in the next 10 years or do you think it's going to stay relatively the same, but Clutter is going to be just adding services? Like, How do you think, how do you envision, I guess, the world in the next 10 years? I genuinely believe more of the world will store their belongings they'll each store less. And what I mean by that is two things. One, I'm confident more of the world will store their belongings because more of the world is moving into metropolitan cities. Today, 55% of the world's population lives in big cities. In the next decade or two, that's going to go to 70, 75%. What that means is there's less space. And when there's less space, you need an on-demand storage solution. Secondly, it's important to understand what people store, they store three types of things. Frankly, they store junk. I've seen that from uh, Storage Wars, right? When, they, uh, when they, buy the, they buy the locker and they open it up, it's just nothing there. Yeah. Secondly, they store stuff that has asset value, art, fine wine, etc. Stuff that's going to appreciate. You don't want to throw that stuff away. That's not junk. And then thirdly, they store items that they have an emotional attachment to, 
items that we internally call memories or time machines into the past, as we move more and more into cities and we have less and less space, more of us are going to store our stuff. But what I do think is going to happen is we're going to store less junk, which is why we as a business want to offer one day disposal as a service, one-click disposal. Imagine that, how convenient that would be. But you're still going to want to store your stuff that has asset value. And the question is, how do you drive value from these items that have asset value while they're in storage? Well, that's also why one day we want to help you sell your stuff or rent your stuff or maybe even borrow against your stuff with just one click. Imagine you have a car in storage or a $100,000 painting and you need $1,000 or you just want to rent it to someone because you'd rather have income from that asset. We can help you with that. And then your memories are never going to go away and we will help you store them for as long as you want to keep them. All in all, you'll end up either storing less or driving more value from what you put into storage. But you know, because we're all moving into cities, more of us are just going to need it. Your second hypothesis of becoming a way to sell my assets, because I knew exactly who you're talking about. Like my uncle stored his Mustang. He always said he was going to restore it. He just never did. I mean, he kept it in storage for decades. He never wanted to let go of it. But if he had a system, when, and when the day came, he finally wanted, was willing to liquidate it. He then had to find a buyer. He, of course, had to meet them in the storage. Like it was, it was, a, it was a nightmare, right? I mean, imagine if you know, imagine if eBay and FedEx had a baby. Like that's what we can do for consumers. We can deliver something to consumers that's ten times more convenient than eBay. If you have your skis in our storage facility, and for whatever reason you no longer want to ski, we already have a picture of your skis. You know, all we gotta do is list it in a marketplace. Have you know, wait for someone to buy it, and then we'll actually do the fulfillment for you. You don't have to do anything. No more trips to FedEx, Home Depot. That's why you're a tech company, because you need to build the infrastructure to say like real-time inventory across, you said a thousand plus warehouses. This is awesome. Yeah, this is really a platform that we've built. You know, it's a platform that's made up of great people, uh, a lot of processes, a lot of products. And ultimately, storage is very simply the first application on this platform, but we see a number of applications being launched on this platform over the next few years. That's phenomenal. All right, thanks for sharing your vision for the future of storage. For everyone out there listening, you might think it's a boring business. In its current state, it may be, but what Clutter's doing, pretty exceptional. Some of the hypotheses you have for the future are, are quite interesting. We, of course, would love to see how it plays out over the next few years. I appreciate it. Till next time, everybody. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.